Good morning. I pray and hope that each of you had a very good, enjoyable Christmas time and that it was meaningful and memorable. For me, it is a little bit because I got gashed in the head by my son's toy. <laughs> Not always so safe to be a parent, but it's meaningful and memorable. So I pray that it was similar for each and every one of you. So just to remind you, this morning, what we're doing is we're doing a worship service, which means that we are here to celebrate Jesus Christ. That what we have just done is we have sung about the beauty and glory of Jesus, and then we're going to sit under the teaching and hear about Jesus, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Not that this earns righteousness or saves you, not that it wins you salvation, Jesus has purchased it completely at the cross. He has given it to us entirely by his work and his work alone. And so we come and we celebrate with that, and it is by faith alone we believe in him for salvation. And the last way we worship God is by giving. Many of you know there's a silver box in the back of the church, and we worship him in the money that we give. Now, if you're new or visiting, we're not looking for your money. We're just so thankful that you're here. I pray that it is meaningful, it is memorable, that it is a blessing for you to hear about Jesus Christ and that you are enjoying the worship of him and that you would engage in that with us. To just rem uh, remind you, we are in our Herald series. The, this is the last message for the holiday season. And we normally go verse by verse and we will start that up again in the new year as we go back to 1 Peter, but we're just taking a moment of pause and reflection to consider God our herald and the names of God, and we will study this morning the name of God as son. Maybe there is no more mysterious name of God than his name is son. So let me pray, and then we will jump right into it. Gracious Father, I am so thankful for your mercies. I'm so thankful for your kindness. Lord, I just ask that you would break strongholds this morning, that you would lift up your son Jesus in the hearts of your hearers, that they would break the ceiling of their heart with the glory of Jesus, and that their hearts would be singing, that there would be a wonderful melody inside of them as they know the Son of God. I ask for your blessing in this message that it would be pleasing to you and honorable to you, that Jesus would be high and lifted up. In his name we pray, amen. So every morning when we get together, every Sunday, we come to hear pretty much the same story, the same true story over and over again because there's something about us that loves stories and whoever has the best story wins so we come because we know we are hearing the best story it is the dominant story it is the story that beats and triumphs over every other story it's not like Snow White and Cinderella which are fiction it is the true story that outdoes every other story because it engages our hearts, our imaginations, we know it's beautiful. People from every tribe and tongue and nation come to hear it. They are starving for this story. People from every time period 
are starving to hear the story of redemption. They are starving for the story of grace, starving for the story of God's own son. And stories increase the power of the object. I will give you an example. Let's say I asked you where you got your shirt this morning. Let's say you said, I got it online, Pete. I bought it like in five minutes. It just showed up a few days later. And there it was. It didn't really have much of a story behind it. So it lacks a kind of appeal. But let's say you said instead, this shirt is special to me. My grandmother knit it for me on my birthday. And her grandmother knit it for her on her birthday. This shirt has a tradition. It has a legacy. It goes back to my ancestry. It is a remembrance of a time when we survived a great famine and a great crisis. And so we knit this shirt to remember where we came from. Now, that story is powerful. That story is meaningful. Even if the shirt is not as good as the shirt that's online, it is still a more precious shirt because of the intensity of the story. And because God knows that an intense, powerful, passionate story can make something more powerful, God does not just give us his son. He gives us the powerful, intense story of his son. That the gospel would not come to us without a story. Because if the cross was not in the context of a story, it would be like that shirt that you bought online. It would lack the appeal and the power that the gospel ought to have. The gospel ought to have the best and most powerful and greatest story. And it does. This gospel comes to us with power. It comes to us resonating inside of our hearts. And because we have the most powerful, significant, life-changing story, we have the most powerful, significant, life-changing gospel that can ever be given. And it is all because of the Son. And because it comes in a story, there's hope for us. Because when there are stories, it includes other characters. We have hope because we can enter into God's story. We can have hope with God in his story. That story of redemption is still ongoing and unfolding in every one of our lives. The story of how God rescued you. The story of how you received forgiveness of sins and eternal life forever. Your story is your identity. Do you know how I know that? If I asked you, who are you? And I said, let's get a cup of coffee. Hang out with me. Tell me who you are. You know what you're not going to do? You're not going to tell me your weight. You're not going to tell me your gender. You're not going to tell me anything physical about yourself. You're going to tell me your story. Who are you? Where, you're going to tell me where you came from. You're going to tell me about your parents. You're going to tell me about your upbringing. You're going to tell me about your community. You're going to tell me all that has happened in your life. Because who you are is your story. 
So we need our identity to be wrapped up in God's story. And the only way that is possible is through one character. It is through Jesus Christ. Only if we know the main character do we get to be part of God's redemption story. Only if we know him. That's why the most, a famous dictum that says it's not what you know, but who you know, that could not be more true for this story. It's who you know. Do you know the son? Do you know him? You don't earn him. You trust in him. So, this is the story I want us to talk about this morning. The story of how the son became known to us. The story of how the eternal God is a son. So let's jump to the passage that we've been looking at for the last few, segments, a few weeks. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Open your Bibles with me. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Stop there for a second. What I want to point out this morning is if you just read that verse on its face and plain sense, it is unbelievable. It says there will be a son given, a child born, and his name will be called Mighty God. How can God be born? How can the God who is from everlasting to everlasting be a child that is born? How can he be a son that is given? That sounds like it's impossible. That sounds almost unbelievable. If it were not in our Bibles, you would say that makes no sense. So verse 7 says, The increase of the government and the peace will be no end on the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When it says that he will be on the throne of David, that means that he is the Messiah. And when God is talking about the Messiah, that means he is talking about one of the most important revelations that he will give us. So here he is giving us one of the most important persons that we need to know about, and he is putting one of the most confusing revelations at the center of it. He is saying this son will be given, he will be born, and he will be the mighty God. Right there in the middle. When I said this to my kid, I said to him, hey, did you know that God's name is Son? That he is God the Son? And he said, no, God doesn't have a daddy. He's like any thinking person. God doesn't have a daddy. How can this be possible? God leaves us in the ultimate cliffhanger. For 700 years, he doesn't even answer this. He just leaves it there. We have to wait. Well, not us, praise the Lord, but they had to wait 700 years to get the answer to this. So to find the answer, we must go to the New Testament. My sermon has four points. For the rest of this point, the sermon. First point is there is no story without the son. The second point is the son must be experienced. 
The third, the son is God and man. And the fourth, the son is God's story of love. The first point, there is no story without the son. There, to me, that does not seem that there is an author more than the Apostle John, John who thought about this question. You see, the Apostle John was with Jesus for three years, and then it took him 40 years to write his first sentence. They think that his gospel, the gospel of John, was not written until around 70 AD. Jesus died around 30. Think about that. There's all other kinds of books being written, but the Apostle John waits 40 years to write anything down. And if you've read the, Apostle, the Gospel of John, it's one of the most incredible books ever written in all of history. So John is thinking, meditating, and praying on his introduction. What is the first sentence that he will write down? What is it that took him 40 years to put pen to paper? He's not some young buck rushing to publish. He is wise. He is experienced. His words will be weighty. This is one who has seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead. What is the first thing he will tell us? So he starts his gospel like this. He breaks the silence with this sentence. He says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What in the world is he talking about? Verse 14, he's going to tell us the word became flesh, and this was the son. So he is talking about Jesus. But just think about what he's saying. This word was God in an active relationship with God. The word was with God. The word was God. He is God distinct from God. He is the God distinct from the God. But this is a Jewish monotheistic apostle. He thinks there's only one God. So he is claiming in the first sentence that there is God with God. God exists with God the same God. He is unpacking what Isaiah 9, 6 could only scrape at. And it's the first thing he says. He took 40 years to put it on paper. He is saying, you need to know this. You must know that God is the Son. You have to know this. Commentators say, this sentence, the structure of this sentence is incredible. John has almost broken the Greek language to put it on paper because he wants to express the magnitude of this word. And it's not in vain. This sentence has probably changed the entire world. This one sentence. And that word in Greek is logos. So he is saying in the beginning was Logos. The Logos was with God. The Logos was God. That's a very unique term in in, uh, John's day because the Logos meant like the meaning of the universe. What's the story of the universe? Tell me 
what's the principle that brings everything together? And by John's day, they wondered if there even was a Logos. And John says, I found the Logos. I have found him. And verse 4 says, in him is life. This son is the Logos. Not some principle, a person. He is the Logos. Jesus is at the center of the universe. He, all things hang together in him. He's the main character, and so without him, there's no purpose, there's no meaning. He is fundamental reality. Sometimes there are things that exist that need a more fundamental reality. An example, a rainbow. For a rainbow to be a rainbow, it needs color. Can't be a rainbow without color. What John is telling us is because this logos is so important, there can't be anything without the Son, the logos, Jesus Christ. As much as a rainbow needs color, we need Jesus to be who we are. There is no story without the Son. The Son is the story. I'll give you another example. Try watching the Titanic without the Titanic. Try watching the Avengers without the Avengers. Or Back to the Future without the time machine. Rewatch the Avengers without the Avengers in it. That's nonsense. You're not even watching anything anymore. John is saying that Jesus is like the Titanic is for the movie. Jesus is as important as the ship is. Jesus is like the Avengers for the Avengers. Jesus is like the time machine for Back to the Future. The whole thing hangs on him, the main point. Without him, it's gibberish. Without him, it's meaningless. It's pointless. The whole story falls apart. That's why the apostles are called the apostles of Jesus. Without him, there's no story. And when you experience the sun, it changes you. The apostles' lives were redefined by the sun. Their whole life was changed. And hear this. It is good news. It is good news that Jesus is the center of the story and not you. It is good news that you are not the center of the universe. I'll give you two reasons why. First, look at celebrities. When they travel, they don't even travel with their real names because they don't want all the attention. They feel like people are always looking at them and it makes them start to feel insecure and exhausted. We are not designed to carry that weight of glory. And also, if you were at the center of the universe, it would be to the detriment of everyone else. Because you know, you're the most selfish person you know. But if you give yourself to the sun and put him at the center of your story, it is good news. Because he doesn't bring attention to himself by abusing you and oppressing you. He brings attention to himself by taking better care of you than anyone ever has, even your own self. 
Him as the main character means now all your sorrows can be turned into joys. Him as the main character means that you can give yourself completely to him and pour yourself out for him and afterwards you feel more full. Him as the main character means you're not an extra, you're not a replacement, you are his child. So John is saying so much when he calls the son the Logos. He is saying that's the story. If you want your life changed, enter God's story. Let yourself get wrapped up in him as the story. Then your life is mission. Then your life is meaningful. Then your life is purposeful. Now you have a story to share with others. Now you have the grace that other people really do need. You can give a story and love and the kindness that comes with that story. And now you know the power, the forgiveness of sins that comes from that story. And so our goal is to always be connecting it back to the sun because without the sun, there is no story. Second point. The son must be experienced. John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I want to focus on that phrase, we have seen his glory. Just imagine for a moment, living at the same time as Jesus. The disciples were going through that. They were watching this Jesus, and he's doing the same thing that God can do. He is raising people from the dead. He is forgiving sins. People come up to him and worship him, and he receives it. So, and then he's praying. What in the world? How can he be praying? He's God. Here they are experiencing something that's confusing. They cannot understand it. John is saying, before he ever believed in the Trinity, he experienced the Trinity. He was an experiential Trinitarian before he even believed it. In other words, his mind was breaking, but his heart was burning. He's like, I can't fully understand what in the world's going on, but I know what I have seen. He says, I have seen this glory. It's the same way for every single one of us. Before we ever believe in any of these almost inexpressible realities, we must first have experienced God. We must have seen his glory. It needs to land in us. I'll give you an illustration. Just imagine, you, for some of you this has been you or you know someone that this has happened to. Imagine there's a couple and they find out that the wife is pregnant. She's three months pregnant. She tells the husband and this is their first child. There's going to be totally different reactions. You see, for a wife, the baby's inside of her. But for the, the guy, the husband, it's just mostly right there. So she comes up to him, and she's all excited. She's like, oh, feel my baby. Oh, tell me, tell me, tell me. And the husband's like, yeah, this is really good. And he doesn't even really feel it, but he wants to be excited with her. 
The problem for him is that everything he knows about this baby is just in his head. But for the wife, it's inside of her. It's in her body. She is having an experience of this child. And the husband, he's just not as excited about her because he just has an intellectual understanding. But once the baby comes and it lands on him and he carries the baby in his hands, and he experiences this child, now he understands, I am a father. He doesn't just have intellectual understanding anymore. He's experiencing a reality. It's the same way for us when it comes to God. That's why John says, I have seen his glory. We must experience God. It is critical and necessary and vital that God is experienced. And so as a genuinely saved follower of Jesus, you know what it is like to have your sins forgiven. You have heard him speak peace to you. You have experienced love. And finding God is as profound as having a baby. Having a child is radical. It changes everything about you, your priorities, your activities, your tenderness and care. As radical and as life-changing as it is to have a baby, it is far more radical to have the son. When you have the son, he changes everything. Everything about you is transformed. To really experience that transformation, you must experience the Son. Have you experienced the Son? Or is it just in your brain? Are you like that husband who pretends to be excited here every morning? Or are you like the wife who says, He's in my body? I know him. Is that you? The third point. The son is God and man. For this one, we'll jump to John 5. John 5, 18, it says this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. What's very unique about the son, if you really think about it, it's incredible. Most of God's names were revealed from heaven, like Jehovah Jireh or El Shaddai, God the provider, God the almighty. Those are not revealed from God standing in front of you in the flesh. They are revealed in heaven. The Son is a revelation of God in the flesh, standing before the world. God is telling them, I am the Son. And it's not like the other names because this name is another person within the being of God. And Jesus in this passage is relentlessly pushing the fact that he's the son. 
it, you notice it says the Jews were seeking to kill him. When someone wants to kill you, you normally back down unless the message is too important. Jesus is saying when he's calling God his father and making himself equal with God, the message is too important. It is essential that we know that God, the Father, is his Father. Because in a Jewish context, to be the son of someone means you shared their nature. It means that Jesus is claiming to share every divine attribute that the Father has. He's not some lesser deity. He is equal to the Father. And so he calls him Father, claiming equality. And then jumping back to John 1.14, God is man. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That phrase, the word became flesh. This is a powerful reality because of the way it's supposed to connect us to God. Imagine that you found out because of your job you had to immigrate or emigrate really. You had to emigrate to the country of Syria. You see, what happens when you emigrate to another country, you become like a lost soul. Here, when you live locally and you grow up locally, your family knows you, your friends know you, everybody knows the kind of person you are, they welcome you, you know the customs. When you go to an outside country, people are suspicious of you. People don't trust you. People say you don't meet the qualifications for acceptance in this area. They say you have no history here, you have no roots, you have no investment here, so it creates distrust. So if you had to go to Syria, it would be very difficult to connect with anybody over there. It's the same way for God. When God is in heaven, it's very difficult for us to feel like God is not an outsider because he's from a distant foreign land. But when you find out that he dwells among us and he comes in the flesh, he is transformed from an outsider to an insider. The son coming means that he will be in the same form as us, but without sin. He will come to break down all the barriers. He will be homegrown. He will invest himself in our land. He will have a history here. He is coming to help us so that we would receive him as an insider, that we do not put up a barrier and wall, but instead allow him to come near. The last point. The Son is God's story of love. Look at John 1.18 with me. It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. There's a phrase here. He has made him known. The word is ezegesato. That word literally means he tells God's story. That means that the coming of the Son means he has come to tell 
all of God's story. The Son is the walking story of God. He is the story of God come in the flesh. When you receive him, you receive a new story. You receive a new narrative, a new plan. The whole storyline for your life is changed by receiving a son. The son changes your entire path. It's like when a, one of your favorite television shows introduces a new character. Now you learn everything about them. They're transformed and brought into an entirely new storyline. When you receive the son, you come into an entirely new storyline. And that means that there is not going to be any room for two stories in your life. In your life, there can only be one story. He is the son. Have you given yourself to him as the story? Are you all in? Galatians 4.6 says this. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. With the coming of the Son means that adoption is possible. If you remember the cross, Jesus is crying out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There is a deep, intimate connection. What Paul in Galatians 4, 6 is telling us is that the same way that Jesus can call on his Father, you may now call on a Father. You may now, as an adopted child, have someone to call father. He has gone to such great lengths to connect with you. An analogy that I read of how far God would go went like this. He said, imagine you were born in this country and some foreign king had taken some unique liking to you. And he had sent you letters about how much he loved you. He had sent you gifts. From the moment of childhood, as you grew up, you had been constantly receiving these gifts from this foreign king. He had been sending you all kinds of presents and telling you that you are the crowned heir who will take his throne. And you have not even met this great king. What would you feel like? You would feel like, I have to know who this king is. Why has he taken such great care for me? And that is exactly like what God does for us. He sends us gift after gift. He tells us over and over via letters that I love you. He gives you his ultimate gift of his own son so that you would cry, Abba, Father. That you would long for intimacy, the deepest possible intimacy and greatest longing to know this Abba Father. The Abba Father means you as God's child have more intimacy than you know what to do with. That is, when you're intimate with someone, you, are, you exist as three components. You have your will, you have your emotions, and you have your mind. When you're intimate with someone, 
you hold none of those back from him. If you hold back your will, that means you're just saying, I don't want to be around you, or you treat them like an object, and you always win. Do you treat God like an object? If it's your emotions that you hold back, do you hold back your feelings? Do you hold back the overflow of your love? Would you accept that from anyone that calls themselves your deep, intimate friend? Or if it's your mind and you're checked out, are you on autopilot when you experience God? Without your will and your emotions and your mind, you cannot have deep intimacy with God. In closing, let me tell you a, a remarkable Christmas story that I, that I had read. The stories about World War I, they called it the Christmas Truce of 1914. They were a few months into the war, and on Christmas Eve of 1914 to Christmas Day, they called what they called a Christmas Truce of 1914. They had been shooting at each other, throwing bombs at each other, and attacking each other, but they called a temporary ceasefire. And they said, for this day, we will not attack each other. And what you could hear, they said, was, was carols coming from both sides. Christmas carols in the middle of the World War I. And then slowly, soldiers came out of their trenches and met with each other. And they shared food. They shared cigarettes. They shared family photos. And then it says that a soccer ball came out. And one German soldier said, the English brought out a soccer ball. And this marvelous, wonderful thing happened. A game ensued. Suddenly, in the middle of World War I, they're playing soccer with each other. They have a temporary ceasefire, and they're enjoying a game of soccer together. Meanwhile, hours earlier, they had been shooting at each other and throwing bombs at each other. But... The reason why that story is incomplete is because we know the war continued. This was not real peace. This was merely a truce. The kind of peace that we celebrate is real, lasting peace. We come here to celebrate not peace with man that fails. We come to celebrate peace with God through his only Son, and if we have peace with God, we can have peace with men. The kind of peace that was purchased on a cross to get rid of all of our sins and bring enemies truly together. The world is grasping for peace, but the best they can get is a temporary ceasefire so that they do not kill each other. But the peace that we have is not superficial. It is lasting. It is deep. It is eternal. The peace we have is real peace, the kind of peace that can only come through the sun because the sun is the story of God's love. When you ask the question, does God love me? He does not give you a whisper from heaven that says, I care. He gives you a shout from the earth on the lips of his son, hanging on a cross, saying, it is 
finished. This is the greatest, most powerful story ever told about the greatest, most powerful person ever given. This is the son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the son. Thank you for your kindness in sharing your son with us. Thank you for the intimacy that comes through your son. Lord, we, we do not deserve it, but you have given us gifts beyond measure. And yet, our hearts, they're still weak. Lord, help us to not run away, but to run towards you. Break the power of sin in our hearts, in our lives. Give us the resolve to give our lives to the Son. I ask for it in his name. Amen.